Hosea chapter 6. As you know, I've been kind of trying to work our way through the book of Hosea. Uh, some, some of them I share on Wednesday and Sunday nights, and, um, but I wanted to, to wait uh, to share the beginning of chapter 6 on a Sunday morning uh, simply because of the weightiness of Hosea's writings uh, in terms of his rebuke of the people of Israel or God's rebuke of Israel through uh, Hosea. Uh, so I didn't want, if you only come on Sunday mornings uh, regularly, I didn't want you to be deprived uh, of the hope that we also hear in the book of Hosea as well. And it is kind of dispersed throughout the book in different places and I think definitely prophetic in nature. Uh, we know from the history of uh, the northern kingdom or Ephraim or Israel that they ultimately did go into captivity. Uh, we, we really haven't distinguished uh, whatever happened to those ten tribes. Uh, I still believe the prophecy is true uh, that God will one day again uh, restore Israel but in the way that he has ordained from the very beginning uh, which would be through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So all of Israel um, will be saved just like uh, you and I are saved as Gentiles through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and I think uh, part of God's restoration of his people will be bringing to bear uh, the realities of the Messiah uh, upon his uh, chosen people, historically uh, the Israelites. So we look forward to the day as Gentiles that uh, the original branches will be grafted back in, uh, just as we were grafted into a tree that was by nature not our own. And so it's a hopeful sort of message as well as a, a sobering message. Uh, the last time I shared with you on Sunday morning, it was in chapter 5, uh, which was uh, really heavy, uh, heavy in regards to the cost of rebellion against God. In chapter, 11, or chapter 5, verse 11, Hosea wrote, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, he says, God says, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim sent, went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. And he says through the prophet, but, but he is unable to heal you or to cure your wound. And then he says of God himself towards his people Israel, he says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. And I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Uh, those are heavy, frightening words from God through the prophet to his people. And you can believe uh, that they message there was affliction is certainly coming upon my people. He's already made the case for their great rebellion. And so affliction is coming. God says himself, I will tear. I will tear. And I will carry away and nobody will deliver them from my hand. Not the king of Assyria. Not later on in chapter 7. Not, not uh, Egypt. There is no one who can deliver those who've come under the judgment of God for their sins, there's none who can take them out of that affliction that God brings. And it's a sobering and frightening passage of Scripture, not only for Israel in the historical context, but the parallels I've been making in regards to our world today and, and more particularly to our nation. I mean, it is striking 
the, the condemnation that God brings to bear on his people and how similar we are as a people in this nation, certainly in the world, but particularly in this nation. So in chapter six, we get into what might be considered an invitation. Uh, maybe it's an imperative. And the first word in chapter six is come. So that may be uh, Hosea's invitation or God's invitation through Hosea to his people to return, but it may be more forceful than that. It may be a, a, an imperative or a command from God through Hosea to the people, come. I mean, I thought about that. If I am going to have a nice day at the lake, I might call you up and say, come go with us. But if I come into your house and you're in the bed and your house is in flames and I go up and grab you out of the bed and I say, come, that's not an invitation. That's an imperative. Your life is at stake. So it may have that connotation as well, but we'll read all 11 verses, but I want to concentrate on verse one through three this morning in terms of this imperative invitation to God's people. He begins here, come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And then he shifts here in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. This is why I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Father, we thank you for your word. And as always, we are needful of your mercy and your grace this morning, not only myself in the speaking and in the in the proclaiming of this truth but father in the those who are gathered in this room in the right hearing of it at the end of the day the most important thing that can be said in the heart of anyone in this room today is what your spirit says to us through your truth through your word and so father we yield all of us the speaker and the hearers we yield now to your spirit and your desire to work your sanctifying work in the hearts of believers and perhaps to even call those in rebellion to yourself this very morning. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ as it's reflected in shadow even here in our text this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As I mentioned already, the first phrase, uh, the first word in the text that we're looking at, verses 1 through 3 this morning, is the word come. I couldn't help when I read that uh, thinking of the more compassionate uh, invitation that Jesus gave. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's reflective of that. But as I say, I think it's more forceful. It's more urgent. Israel had gone far from God. In fact, from the division of the kingdom, they set up calves and places of worship other than in Jerusalem where God was to meet his people in the temple there. And out of fear in the northern kingdom that people would revert back to the southern kingdom and be won back over to the southern kingdom, they set these up. So it was a man, it was a man orchestrated false religion from the very beginning, and the northern kingdom kept going down that path. In fact, they even crafted calves and, and cattle uh, to be worshiping bulls. And so they incorporated all the bales and the pagan worship in some spiritual some kind of combination of things. There was Yahweh thinking and all sorts of Israelite specificity in their worship, but there were all these pagan elements as well, and they had gone far away from God. And I've made the case throughout this series of our, our own relationship to that as Americans. We have gotten far away from God. In fact, I'm convinced that the that the moral foundation that we most often used to share even 20 years ago uh, can, can be said no more. We no longer share that. Uh, we've lost our way morally as a nation because we've moved away from God incrementally through the generations uh, as a nation. And the farther we get away from God, the less His truth matters to us and the more subjective it becomes and the more... And the more subjective we become in our selective outrage. Our morality starts falling away and we're not unlike Israel. And so when I hear God calling to his people Israel, come here with this imperative, I hear the same thing that God may be saying to us as Americans, come, come. It's an invitation, yes, but it's more forceful than that. It's not simply a plea to come. It is, a, it is an imperative to come. Let me just say it is urgent for America and for this world that we come or return to God now. Don't you feel that as a believer? I mean, what's the news? I mean, it's becoming more and more urgent it seems like we're, we're running at breakneck speed away from God and to our destruction. And we're seeing signs, I think, are even mercies of God when judgments come upon us and natural disasters or whatever they may be. There is a sovereign God in back of those things that may be demonstrating a mercy towards this world. <clears throat> but yet, even under, the, even under the auspices of the mercy of God, we rush headlong into our rebellion as a people and as a globe, as a world. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. And Hosea begins his response here to this rebuke of God with the invitation and the imperative that they should come. Notice as well that it's a universal call. Don't overlook the fact that he says us. 
It is wonderful individually if your life has moved away from God and God has convicted you and your rebellion. It's a wonderful thing that you hear the urgency of God's call to come and return to Him. But, but here He expands that. It's let us return. It is not enough in and of itself that I return to God from my rebellion. It is a call going out to a nation, all of Israel. He's already convicted the nation. He's already demonstrated it's not just people. It's people, princes, and priests. The whole of Israel had rebelled against God and moved away from God. It is not enough that a single Israelite return. Yeah, true, it may be instrumental that it begins with one, but it is a call and, a, and an invitation for all to return. And your prayers for our nation and for our world that's what we ought to be praying for, that God would send and by His Spirit and call out a nation to return. We, uh, somebody sent me a video this week, and, and this guy was observing that, and they were going through all these crime statistics, and at the end of all those statistics, the question was, do you think that's reflective of those in the NFL or the NBA? And the guy made his guess and the commentator said, wrong on both counts. It's in the United States government. It's the Senate and the Congress and all these crimes and all this character flaws are, are currently demonstrated in the ones who represent us. So this is a call to all of Israel to return. And so it is a call to all of America and to the whole world if we rightly apply what Paul or what Hosea is saying in his word today, it's let us return. As a church, let's just say it's a call to us. It's not enough that I do. It's not enough that the deacons or the elders do. It's not enough. It's good and it's wonderful that leaders are returning to God and defying or stepping away from their sin and their resistance and their defiance of God and move back to God. It's a wonderful thing and it may be instrumental in your coming, but the call is to you, to every one of you sitting in this room today. It's a call to us to return to the Lord. Now, that's, that was really striking to me this week because I began to think about in what ways am I persistent in moving away from the Lord? What things have I embraced in my life thinking? What patterns of behavior have the trajectory of moving me away from the Lord? You may come to church regularly. You may do your devotions. You may pray. You may try to minister to others in the community. But what area in your life are you still reserving to yourself and operating according to the desires of the flesh and not in subjection to God? In that area in your life, individually, this invitation, this imperative comes to rest. Return to God. It is not a small thing to be varying from the truth of God's Word in a little area. I remember in the service, you'd be one, one degree off course, not a big deal. You can correct that until the officer of the decks says to a young sailor, Son, do you realize what happens if you keep that degree off course for the next 500 miles? We will miss our harbor. We will miss our place of refuge from the storm. We will completely miss Hawaii if you stay on that present course. Get on course, soldier or sailor. 
And so I think often we think that, well, I'm not really yielding to God over here, but it's a small thing and others have much larger things. So the question individually for us this morning is, where are you deviating from the path that God would have you walk? And God is calling us through his word this morning. Come, let us return. Let me return. Verse 1 as well, the idea of return indicates here a change of course. We know the Bible word, what we use for that is repentance. I've heard someone define that as a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So it's not enough to think, you know, we ought to return. It's not enough to think we ought to repent. Obviously, we're going to experience consequences from moving away from God. And when those are bad enough, people are going to say out in the world and in America today, we need to get back to God. I see these little, I see these little signs in people's yards and it's good. It says we need to get back to God. We need to go back to God. It's not enough to think that. It's not enough to think that. Israel could stand in their rebellion, go to their calves, offer up their sacrifices, and think the whole times of themselves, things are getting bad. We really ought to return to God. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying, come, let us return. To me, that's interesting because the word return suggests to me a previous place once occupied. You're not, you're, not, you're not going somewhere new. You go back to where they began, which was God's choosing them, calling them out, making his covenant with them, and being their God and they his people. That's where you need to go back to. He's not asking you to go somewhere new. Return, go back to where you were. This is a wonderful text for the Christian who has lost sight of what he's existing for and the Christian life and sanctification because I think sometimes we get weary as Christians of, of our imperfections sometimes and we finally just settle into the place that, well, we're not going to be perfect until we get home. So it's a little sin, it's a little rebellion, and maybe I can tolerate that. Praise God that he's gracious. We adopt that sort of mindset sometimes, but it's not enough to think that we ought to turn from that. We have to act upon that. Yes, a a change of thinking is imperative to that. But there is a return called for here. God wasn't just calling Hosea or the princes or the priest or, or even the prophets of that day, false prophets. He wasn't just calling certain individuals to return and everybody else would follow suit. He's calling the entirety of the people of Israel. Let us return to a place we once occupied. And I would suggest that that place was ultimately when the kingdom was united, even though the seeds for their departure was already being sown then by fleshly desire. So it is a change of course. You'll agree with me this morning that there's nothing more needed in our nation today than a change of course. And don't mistake me to be talking about political parties here. I'm talking about the hearts of Americans, the hearts of the men of this nation we need to get back to the idea that there might be a generation coming after us who would like to enjoy the freedoms we once enjoyed. Instead of sailing all those down the road for momentary satisfaction of fleshly lust and depriving our children of the opportunities to have the same freedoms and things that we've enjoyed as we've grown up. So there is an American characteristic to that. But what's needed here, what's the return that is needed for, is for a people to get back to God, who I am, 
I'm under no illusion that God was providentially very much involved in the establishing of this very nation that we've enjoyed. Let's get back to that God. Let's get back to that God. Not just think about it. Let's begin to do it. And that does begin in our individual lives. And it begins in our church lives. And it begins in your family, fathers and mothers, in reaching your children. Tell them what freedom means. Tell them what true freedom is. Not just the freedom a nation might provide, but the freedom we have in Christ. The freedom from sin. The liberation from the bondage of our sin and from the power of sin in our lives. And that's going to be necessary to a change of course. Notice in verse 1 as well, it's also indicative here of a shared destination. Where are we going back to? I said to the Lord, to the Lord. And that means a lot. To Him we should return. This is what I worry about in our, in our short-lived revivals in our nation sometimes. Because what some people think is we need to get back to moral standards and a moral foundation. That's true, but that's not enough. It's not enough. In fact, if you go back to a moral foundation and, and reject God from that, you're by nature inclined to undermine the very foundation that you're standing on. It is not enough. It is to say, let's become legalists. And I know that legalism leads to oppression. So Israel, God is calling through Hosea, Israel could come back to him first and foremost. Yes, to honor their covenant. Yes, to obey the law. But to the end that they might have fellowship with the God who is a personal God. You know now that God's not just calling you back to Bible reading or to church attendance. God's not calling you back to Sunday school or Sunday nights or Wednesday nights or, or personal devotions in the morning. God's not calling you back just to those things. Yes, He's calling you back to those things, but that they might be instrumental in calling you back into fellowship with Himself. See, there's no, there's no power in the Christian life like knowing God. And yes, all those things are elements and instrumental in doing that. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But I am telling you, they are they which speak of me. In me you have eternal life. The scriptures are instrumental to leading you to me, to look to me. That's the call here. Don't just come back to church. Sure, do that. Don't just go back to Bible reading. Absolutely do that. Don't just go back to prayer. Yes, do that. Go back and let those things be instrumental in bringing you back into relationship with God. For the believer who's been a believer a long time, you remember when you came to Christ? I've heard so many people describe it this way. It was like a burden was lifted off me and for the first time in my life I could breathe and I felt free. Not because you discovered a passage of Scripture. By God's grace, you were introduced to Christ, your Redeemer. And the joy of that moment was because you met someone, not some concept or theory or precept. You see what I'm saying? This is the call of God to His people through Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. That's who we want to know. And that is our surest foundation. I will confess to you right off the bat, and if you've been a Christian a long time, you'll know this, but the old man will substitute anything, anything in the place of the self-dying it's required to know the Lord. 
We will substitute Bible reading. We will substitute institutions. We will substitute traditions. We will substitute all sorts of things that will stop short of our coming to the end of ourselves so that we might know him. He's going to say later on, so let us press on to know the Lord. Not press on to know the law. They knew the law and they didn't keep the law. They knew they were God's covenant people, but they didn't honor the covenant. Let us press on, he says later. So the destination that they're called to return to was the Lord himself. Don't miss that. If you're sitting in this sanctuary this morning and you've deviated and your life has grown cool and cold towards Christ and cold towards the things of God and from God himself, the call for you today is to return to him. Read your Bible, yes, pray, yes, come to church frequently, yes, talk to other Christians, yes, read Christian books, yes, do all those things. But let none of those be a substitute for finding and fellowshipping with the God of your salvation. Because they won't suffice. Your flesh will corrupt those in some way and you'll miss Christ. So the destination is Christ. In verse 1 as well, there's a shared recognition. This is really powerful, but in verse 1 he says, For he has torn us. He says in the second phrase there, He has wounded us. Where did our wounds come from? How has our nation come to the place that it's come to, Israel might ask. And the prophet says, the Lord has torn you and the Lord has wounded you. And that's a struggle for some of us. But you remember David, whenever he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, and Nathan says to him, you're the man. In his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he says to God there against you and you only have I sinned. That's not true. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband, had him murdered. He even sinned against Bathsheba's family and dishonored her in the sight of her mother and father and all of her family. He sinned against the kingdom of Israel in terms of his defiance of God's law and God's word there. So he sinned against everybody, but yet here's the psalmist saying against you and you only have I sinned. Why does he say that? Because he understands that at the ultimate, the ultimate Defiance, the ultimate defilement is that you are created by God and your ultimate sin comes to rest against God. I think it's the same ideal here. Yes, consequences of their sin became affliction upon themselves, but yet they were so stubborn in their sins that they, they just wrote it off to natural disasters or a, a lustful kingdom, perhaps Assyria. They're just a powerful people and a wicked people. And so they've come and overthrown us. And they were, we're so prone to write it off to some natural thing. And the prophet makes it very clear here. Yes, God may have used natural means in the king of Assyria, but the wounding and the affliction and the tearing is God himself tearing his people, bringing judgment to bear on his people. That's where I think America and this world better wake up. And we better wake up quickly. It is, not, it is not defying God to assign to God sovereign control in the universe and over the weather patterns to bring upon a, a rebellious and a defiled people whatever he may choose to bring to, to spark either destroy them and to spark others to repent or to call all to repent. But God is sovereign and Hosea knows it and he assigns the wounds though they may come from all different sources. He assigns the wounding to God himself. There's a frightening reality in that. 
is that if you're in covenant relationship with your God, he is not beyond wounding you to bring you back to himself, to restore you to himself. I shared on last Sunday, perhaps, or maybe one of the other messages, I don't want to be so hardened in my heart that it takes a severe judgment of God to bring me back into fellowship with him. I would rather be sensitive to the spirit and the prompting of the spirit for sin in my life and turn early rather than go as far as Israel had gone. And they had gone almost beyond return. So there's a shared recognition, a resignation. It's encouraging here because the same God who tore us can bandage us. The same God who wounded us can bandage us. Notice early on in chapter 5, God says specifically, I will tear them in pieces. I will carry them away. And what do they do? They go to Assyria and say, hey, can you fix our wound? And God says, they won't be able to do that. Why? Because they didn't inflict it. I did. And you can't can't heal the wounds with earthly things and earthly kings that I inflict for my own purposes. The wound will stay in place until you come to me. And the same God who wounds and tears is the same God who can heal and bandage. Only Him. And that's what we really need to get as America. There's not going to be a president or an administration or a party that can heal the wounds that God has caused in this nation and globally because they would, that would work against his purposes until the nation that he wounds comes to him. And then when, when they come to him, they will find there the healing balm for those wounds. I love it later on that he talks about here in two days and three days. And in the immediate context, I think Hosea is saying to them, look, if we return to him, he can, he can bring what we've been enduring for decades as far as wounding in a day. In a day. In fact, I think that ties into the New Testament precept that with God a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. Yes, your wounds may have been a thousand years in the making, but to return to the source of those wounds, the one who has wounded for his own purpose, is to get sometimes immediate. One generation can turn around with this God who wounds but who can also heal. I'm thankful in some ways that Because I'm thankful for the healing God who can heal despite all outward circumstances. But oh, I have to tremble and be humbled that the God who has that kind of power to heal also has the power to wound according to his own purposes. We discard that in our generation today. We live in a generation today that thinks God only judges the most evil in our generation. The serial killers and the wicked men like that. Well, I believe with all my heart we are right now experiencing incrementally the judgment of God upon this nation and throughout this world. Like I said, just take a look at the newscast. I saw a headline this this week and one that under some cannabis-induced hysteria, some woman stabbed her boyfriend a hundred times in some frenzy and so... Caught up in this frenzy was she that the police's taser wouldn't even take the lady down and they literally broke her arm in multiple places just to disarm her. You think that's normal? You think that's normal? Is that indicative of a nation who has defiled itself to the point that we're all descending now into some depth of darkness and where almost anything is inevitable? So there is a call to return to God and a shared recognition that our judgment 
It's coming from his hands, even if, even if there are instruments, uh, earthly and fleshly instruments for that as well. As I said, not only that shared recognition, but this shared hope, he will heal us and he will bandage us. Verse two, there's that future hope as well. I, like I said, I think in the context, I, Hosea was communicating in verse two, he will revive us after two days, after three days, he'll raise us up. Now, prophetically, we recognize that as more significant perhaps than his hearers did. But I think his message there was, though we have spent decades now in rebellion against God and have made ourselves ripe for the fullness of the wrath of God to fall upon us, if we would but recognize that our wounds come from our God, then the same God would heal us and he would do so rapidly, two days, three days max. It's the power of God. And oh, would we but return from a nation as a nation, to God, if we truly return to Him, I think that same rapid thing could happen in a generation. I've been saying I'm afraid that the children who are growing up in this darkness and see their parents making these decisions leading into further darkness and greater affliction and oppression on them may one day rebel and, and come against their parents and aggressively and in wicked ways because they know nothing else but that. And so it may be that we're the generation sowing the seeds of a wicked generation who will punish us for our own wickedness. But it can also be the other way. It could be that we return to God and that our children see the power of God and that those children in one generation turn all this away. They reject the policies and the, and the ideologies infiltrating our world today. They stand firmly and in the faith and, and reject those things and say, we will not yield to this darkness. We have returned to our God and our God says, this is truth and this is light. This is what we will embrace. That can happen overnight, even if it took us decades to get into the darkness we are today. I think that's the message Hosea is saying God can deliver you Israel if you will but return to him don't go to Assyria later on don't go down to Egypt don't look for earthly help look to your God recognize that he has torn you but recognize that he is the only one who can heal and run to him speedily and hastily as quickly as you can and yield to him and he is able to bring healing to you now let me say to the sinner in the room today, though you spent a lifetime of sin and though you've corrupted your life and made it dark and brought emotional distress all into your life and though you are in the pits of despair and frustrated to this very day, turn to God, turn to God and he can heal you and he can, he can bandage those wounds and make you a new man or a new woman. God is able there is a future hope. I think this is true in terms of prophecy because it's clear reference to the resurrection. I thought about this this week. It may be that the healing, the ultimate healing that Hosea is communicating to the people of Israel is the same, uh, same event in which our healing takes place, which is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In two days, he will revive us. In three days, he will raise us up new. So that's Israel's ultimate hope. 
I think temporally speaking, had they returned to God and honored their covenant, God might have brought blessing, but it was only temporary because there's no new nature there and they're still abiding by the law and they will always fail in upholding their end of the covenant and judgment would come. Look at the period of the judges. Year after decade after decade, they would get right, go back, get right, go back, get right, go back, all through the period of the judges. So they were destined to keep falling away, but there was a restoration and a renewal coming and a raising of them coming up someday, but it was rooted in the resurrection of the Christ. And let me say, that's the same event in which you are made new today. That's where your wounds are healed. That's where the bandage is applied to the wounds that God has torn in us in our rebellion. So there's a shared hope, but there's also that future hope. And I would say even that gospel hope, that is the gospel, by the way, for Israel and for the, the nation today. And all that recognizes, and it talks about a turning, a repenting and turning away and recognizing that our affliction is brought upon us by God in our rebellion. But the same God can heal us and he will do so and has done so in Christ himself and only in Christ. So there's a gospel hope. In verse 2 as well. There's a hope for life. Notice he says there, he will raise us up on the third day, but to what end? Verse 2, that we may live before him. Certainly in the future sense, raised in Jesus Christ, we will live before the Father. But in the, in the temporal sense, having been born again and rescued in Jesus Christ and having had our wounds healed, sin is moved out of the way and we live literally in relationship to God. He says all through, throughout the scriptures what? Your sin has separated you from God. The reason you can't fellowship with God is sin is in the way. And if you say, well, I'm going to set my sights to get rid of all my sin. There'll be nothing between me and God and I can relate to God. Good luck. Have at it. Because when you get them all eliminated, there's still one remaining. And when you take care of it, there's still one remaining. In fact, the problem is, is that you have a nature that is bent by its own nature towards sin. So you'll never eliminate the thing that separates you from God. And the only place you'll find that thing taken away and providing for fellowship with you and the Father is in Jesus Christ, in your union with Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. So this is a hope, I think, a living hope that he's offering them. Not just restoration for your generation and the next generation, but in Christ, an eternal, eternal restoration, a renewal of fellowship with God. The things separating you from God taken out of the way out of the way. By the way, I think that's the, the Christian can fellowship with God, not on the basis of in his flesh, all his sin has been eradicated, but in his union with Christ, the father is relating to you on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. So God's fellowship with you is an act of mercy brought about by the sufferings of Christ. Yes, as a Christian, I have fellowship with the father. Yes, I do. But not because I have removed all sin, but because in union with Christ, he has removed my sins and cloaked me in his righteousness. So in the sight of the Father, I wear the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, sin is out of the way and fellowship can happen. But you get away from Christ and you start fellowshiping God with God based upon the, the success of your works this week. You'll notice very soon that you, your fellowship with God is being broken you're not feeling that 
fellowship. You're not feeling that intimacy with God. It's because you're shifting away from dependency upon Christ back to this idea of your own acceptance and your own establishing of your own acceptance with God. You're going to get cold really quick, really quick. Because resting in yourself, you have sin that separates you. So it is a living hope. And then this verse, verse 3, this is probably perhaps my favorite of all these verses. So he says here, so let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. So there's a present tense to that. Let us know, possible, let us know the Lord. He could have stopped there. Return to the Lord, recognize he has torn us, he will bandage us, he has wounded us, he will heal us. And so let's, let's, let's press on to, let's, let's know the Lord. He could have stopped right there. So there is, a, there is a, a capability at least, he's promising that we can know the Lord. Yes, you can. But will you know him fully? Obviously not because he follows that by saying, in fact, let us press on to know the Lord. So everyone in this room today who's a Christian, you would raise your hand and say, yes, I know the Lord. And the question Hosea raises, are you pressing on to know him? Do you think you know everything about him? Have you exhausted his glory and his love and his mercy and his grace? Have you exhausted uh, God of all of his attributes in your knowledge of him? No, you haven't. You haven't even scratched the surface of that. Yes, you may know him through Christ and through your relationship with Christ and you have fellowship with the Father and you long for that and you love that and you spend time with the Father in prayer and devotion and meditating upon his glory and it's a sweet time of fellowship, but press on to know him because he's way more than you've under, understood. In fact, I don't even think eternity will provide for us to exhaust the infinite glory of our God. He's infinite in his attributes. His holiness is infinite. His love is infinite. His grace is infinite. His power is infinite. We spend all of eternity discovering the glories of God Almighty, knowing all the while that they never come to an end. They are infinite in their glory. So though you know him, yes, it's by the grace of God that you know him at all, but press on to know him. You know how a nation keeps itself in fellowship with God? By not resting upon the fact that they know Him, but by pressing on to keep knowing Him, to know Him more fully all the while. I think that's where America from its founding began to get off course because we were founded upon this sensitivity that we know God, we have His Word, and there's truth, and there's intimacy. But as soon as we were established, we rested there. We're a nation who knows God. We just rested there. We sat there, it seems. And we began to move away from pressing on to knowing God. And the moment we thought we exhausted the glory of God by establishing a nation upon his truth was the moment we began to move away from God. And now we have the rare privilege of living in a generation that has almost totally abandoned God. And we're living in the midst of darkness and chaos now. Why? Because we are not pressing on to know the Lord. He gives us this final hope. There's a hopeful resolve and, and hopeful expectation here. Because he, right after saying this, let us press on to know the Lord. He says of us, his going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Why press on to know the Lord? Because his going forth is certain. <laughs> 
He's not, he's not throwing it out there as a maybe. Press on to know the Lord. Who knows? Nothing like that. I mean, sometimes I hear people present the gospel and it's kind of like that. Well, give him a try. You ever heard people do that? Well, obviously your life's not working now. Give Jesus a try. Just see how it works out. I'm thinking to myself, no, don't tell them that. You just took them from one works and shifted that to religious works. You may, you may decide to follow Christ and your life goes haywire off the deep end. You might get martyred at the, at the stake somewhere. Don't give them false promises. Tell them to go press on to know the Lord for it is certain that He will come to you like the dawn. I don't want people searching for a God who might or might not show up. This is what Hosea is saying. Israel, turn to the Lord. He tore you. He wounded you, but He can heal and He can bandage. Know Him. He's your God. Return to the God you once knew and press on to know Him further because it is certain that He will come upon you like the dawn and like the rain, not only just the rain, but the rain that produces fruit in your life. And that's the, that's the call I wish our nation would hear today. Turn back to God. Not as something that might happen, but as understanding that He is the only solution that can bring healing and, and bandaging and fruitfulness to our nation and to this world again. But don't go forth doubting like the waves of the sea being tossed to and fro. Believe that He will come upon us like the dawn light. And that He will provide nourishing and fruitfulness in our lives. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of years trying to produce fruit in my own life. Have you? And it just seemed to me whatever little bit of fruit I could get to squirt out on the limbs of my life, as soon as it got a little bit hot, it wilted and fell off. And even if it, even if it looked like it was fresh, it was always bitter to the tasting. I figured out that I cannot produce a single good fruit. None. Even the best looking ones was bitter and poison to me because it led me to self-reliance for so long until finally I realized that all of my fruit in a basket before God was nothing but a stench and a reminder of the rebellious heart that produced it all. That's when I realized that He has torn me. He has, he has wounded me and only He can heal me. My righteousness, Paul said, is as filthy rags. That's what you've accomplished and you and I have accomplished. But oh, isn't it great this morning to know that there is a holy God who calls even this morning through the Spirit, through His Word, to each of us individually. Come, return to the Lord, the one you knew, the one you knew, and press on to know Him. Don't just rest there. Press on to know Him. And you can be certain that in your pressing on to know him, he will come to you like the dawn. You can stand with me, but I, I, that phrase really struck with me this week because so often I've been out on my deck uh, with my Bible open and meditating upon some passage of scripture. And it is literally like I'm reading this thing over and over. And I sit back in my chair and I'm thinking about that and some other scripture. And I look back down at that and I do that and, and it might go on for an hour or two out there, but suddenly, almost miraculously, it's like this light comes on. Just to describe it in graphic terms, it's like you shine the light on the Bible and it went, bing. And I, and I think of verses like this. 
sitting there pressing on to know the Lord through his word. He came upon me like the dome. It was dark one minute and the light was shining the next. And I think Hosea is saying, and don't stop there. Press on beyond that. There's more light, much more light. Press on, press on, press on, press on all the days of your life. And when you come to the very end of your life, when it gets so dark, keep pressing on. And when we press on through death's door and that dark shadow of death, you awaken on the other side to perfect light. Press on to know the Lord because it's certain he will come upon you like the dawn and he will produce fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that's offered in Hosea here in the midst of certain judgment that was coming upon Israel. And Father, I take for us the same hope today to look around us in this nation and around our world. We are ripe as a people, not just Americans, but all across this globe. We are ripe for the heaviest of your wrath and your judgment. But Father, I thank you that in the midst of our ripeness for that, there is this shaft of light that shines through and calls us individually as churches, as cultures, as states and nations to come to you. And Father, I pray that you would guard us even as a nation, but certainly as churches, that you would guard us against just coming so far back. Lord, help us not to just come back and put prayer in school or come back and put the Bible in school or put the Ten Commandments back in the court. That's not far enough. Father, I pray that you would inspire in our leaders in this nation a desire to publicly proclaim that the nation needs to return to you. And Father, as those who are in fellowship with you help us to echo the call or resound that call throughout our nation and in our community as well, calling others to come and return to the Lord. And Father, we ask this not only for our own hope and our own peace and joy, but so that you might be magnified and glorified by the rescue of millions and the redemption of your people. In this time of invitation, Father, I pray that you would make known to us in our hearts what you would do this day and that we would yield. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.